Welcome to the biggest thing to hit the financial advisory ESG community, environmental, social, and governance. I'm Jonathan Kavaznik, CHFC Wealth Advisor. With over 25 years advisory experience, I've been advising clients so they can make a positive global impact. Hello, and welcome to the ESG Players Podcast with your host, Jonathan Kavaznik, one of the leading ESG advisors in the country. Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for joining us today for another one of our, our great webinars uh, here at Bank Cherokee with Cherokee Investments. As some of you know, I'm Jonathan Kavaznik, financial advisor here at Cherokee Bank. And we're going to talk today about life and taxes. And so, uh, of course, this time of the year, we're getting into the tax season and thought it would be nice and timely to learn a little bit more about what helps us and what hurts us in the tax uh, scenarios and how that plays into some of the rules that changed uh, 2019 and 2020 in regards to how some of the taxes uh, come into play on our own uh, scenarios. So we're going to kick that off. I just want to mention, since we're going to be talking a little bit into depth about taxes, that I'm not a CPA, I'm not a tax accountant. And so everything we talk about is kind of just for ideas and for you to think about and then go to a tax advisor and get tax advice as to whether or not it does or doesn't make sense. But at least today, we're going to get a really good idea of whether or not you're taking advantage of some of the areas that you weren't aware of, or if there's some areas that you were aware of and you weren't quite clear if it applied to you, this will be a really good seminar and webinar for us to be able to do that today. So I'm gonna start it off with the uh, presentation. Uh, Landon is online with us. He works here at Bank Cherokee and he's gonna uh, take the questions on your behalf. And so if you have any questions throughout the presentation, please feel free at any time if there's a concept or a question you have that comes up, Go ahead and enter it in the question box, and then Landon will uh, take care of that, and he'll announce it, and then I'll hopefully be able to answer that timely for you. And if I don't have an answer, of course, we'll get that to you. All right. The other thing that we uh, have learned from doing our webinars is a lot of times people want to see the slides after the presentation. So I just want to let you know all the slides that we're going to go through today will be available to you. We can send those out by email or by hard copy, and you just have to let us know that you'd like to have that and we'll make that available to you so you could review it in the future so that you kind of have a chance to see what we went over today at your own pace, all right? Because we're gonna kind of go a little fast. We only have 45 minutes, and I wanna make sure that we get through the material, but I also wanna make sure people get uh, answers to the questions that they may have so that everyone gets a benefit from today's presentation, okay? So I'm gonna go ahead and start the slide presentation here right now. Here's the official disclosure. As I mentioned, I'm not a tax advisor. Uh, things we're going to talk about in concept probably aren't uh, FDIC insured or guarantees of any institution. And there's my contact information. So if you'd like to get a hold of me uh, after the presentation or any time in the future, there's my phone number and my email address. Just feel free to drop a note to me or give me a call. Okay. So let's start with, um, based on suggestions that I've uh, heard from other attendees and clients, um, these are the kind of things that we're looking to learn more about. And so we thought, wouldn't it be great if I put on a presentation about the SECURE Act changes that took place in 2019, right? We're going to take a few moments to talk about life events and how they can have an impact on your retirement and estate planning. Then we're going to take a look at some key lines on your 1040 tax return. And finally, we're going to cover some resources that I have available if you'd like to, or your financial professional does, to make it a little easier for you to take advantage of the concepts and ideas that we talk about today. So the SECURE Act. Um, many of you uh, probably have heard about the Secures Act that took place in 2019. Some of you might not have. Uh, we're gonna go over that. The Secures Act stands for Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement. 
So of course that was signed into law in 2019. And here's what we're gonna go over. So the SECURE Act was signed in December 20th, 2019, as I mentioned. And there are 27 provisions that were changed in the act that affect how you and I handle certain areas of our taxes. So here are some of the changes that came out into the bill, and we're gonna talk about some of them right now. So they made changes to how our IRA contributions work and what the rules are there. They added a new ability to take money out of our IRAs without the 10% penalty. There's an exception to the rule that took place. They changed the required minimum distribution or the RMD rules. They eliminated, in most cases, the ability for us to do a qualified stretch, meaning if we inherited an IRA from somebody, our ability to continue to stretch that out has been limited in most cases. And there's some miscellaneous provisions that I wanna just surfacely touch on, which is about the, the 529 college plans and the kiddie tax changes, which pertain to uh, minors and how they get taxed on certain things, okay? So let's talk a little bit about what's changed here. So removal of the age limit for contributions to my traditional IRA. It used to be that starting in the year that someone turned 70 and a half, remember, you could no longer make a contribution to an IRA uh, regardless of whether you were working or not. Now the new rule says, as long as someone continues to have earned income, they can continue to make traditional IRA contributions. And they would still need to take the RMDs though, even though they're still working. So it can be a little confusing at, at first, but if we think about the idea that if I can put more money into the IRA and get the deduction because I'm still working, that's a new rule, but I still have to remember I have to take money out of the IRA just like I would have in the past based on doing my RM, RMDs, okay? When did this start? Anytime after December 31st of 2019. So there's also a new exception to the 10% early withdrawal rule. Right, what is that exception? The new rule says that you can withdraw if you have a child, a new child who's born, you can take $5,000 out from your retirement account, your IRAs, and it must occur within 12 months of the child's birth. Most likely it's still gonna be taxable, but that individual is not going to be subject to the 10% penalty by utilizing some of their IRA or retirement accounts for the new child. When did that start? Same idea, it came from the Secures Act. So anything after December 31st, 2019, if you have a child or a grandchild and somebody had a baby and they're saying, I wonder if I could use any of my IRA money to help me or my retirement plan through work, they could do that up to $5,000. That's a new rule that started. Increase to the requirement of distribution age. So this is a really big one for a lot of uh, our clients and it may pertain to you at the current moment or it may not pertain to you if you're younger age. Uh, however, 72 is the new age. So if we think about, remember the rule, it was at 70 and a half, I had to take mandatory distributions from my IRA and my retirement plans. Now that changed to be age 72. So that rule has been around a long time. You can see it started back in the early 1960s. And who does that impact? Any individual who's turning 70 and a half after December 31st of 2019. So what does that mean? If you're already over 70 and a half prior to January 1st of 2020, it doesn't affect you. You have to continue to do it, okay? If you're under 72 and we're going into 2021, 
you have the opportunity then to postpone and wait now because your new age will be mandatory at 72. So let's talk a little bit about, because we have a lot of clients and uh, potentially some people here who are attending today who have inherited IRAs or who potentially might inherit an IRA from a, a family member or a friend. So here's what's changed. The SECURES Act changed the maximum distribution period for beneficiaries, in most cases, to 10 years, right? Meaning that 10-year window starts from the time that you inherited that IRA, you must take all of those assets out of that IRA at the 10th anniversary. The previous rule was you could take annual withdrawals based on your life expectancy and stretch it. So this is what's changed. They're saying that if I inherited an IRA, potentially I'm not gonna get to stretch it anymore. And at the end of the 10 years, I'm going to have to withdraw the money. What are the exceptions, right? So if we look at the second half there, the exceptions to that rule are if I'm the surviving spouse, Right, so my spouse passes away, I inherit their IRA, I can continue to stretch it just like the rule always was. Or if I have a child or an individual that inherits my IRA who has a disability or is chronically ill, that individual is still allowed to do the stretch. Another area would be is if I have a beneficiary who is less than 10 years younger than the owner, than myself, they're still allowed to do the stretch. So an example would be if my sibling, who might be three years younger than me, inherits my IRA, they're allowed to continue to do the stretch. If my child, right, who is much younger than me, more than 10 years younger than me, they will not be allowed to continue the stretch. So this rule is kind of a big uh, situation for a lot of clients going forward, depending on the age of their siblings, their children, and their spouses and how they're uh, working with their IRAs and their retirement plans. So we wanna take this into account. A minor child is still allowed to stretch it. However, that also has changed. It used to be uh, prior to this act, if I were to leave it to my minor child, they could continue to stretch forever. However, the new rule says my child, if they're a minor and they inherit my retirement accounts, can only stretch it until they reach the age of majority meaning you know, they turn 18, and then within 10 years of that timeline, they have to also liquidate. So that's a different rule than we used to have prior to the end of 2019. So just kind of keep that in mind, okay? So the elimination of the qualified stretch, who else is not impacted? So accounts that are currently already being stretched, those are not impacted. So if you already uh, inherited an IRA from a parent or from a relative or from somebody and you're stretching it and you did that prior to 2019, right? You were in 2019 or prior, you get to continue it. In a sense, that's grandfathered in, right? You don't have to worry about, I have to start taking money out faster or I have to, at the end of the, none of those rules apply if you're already doing a stretch IRA from a prior year, okay? But who is impacted is anyone who inherits from a person who passes away after December 31st 2019, right? So we have the who's impacted. Again, anyone who inherits qualified money, retirement plans, and IRAs from a person who passed away after December 31st, 2019. Some of the areas in the uh, planning that we want to cover today and that maybe you want to go back and do a little checking and think about is if you have a trust as your beneficiary on your retirement plans, on your IRAs and your qualified accounts, you probably want to review that because some of the trust documents have language that doesn't complement 
the new rules about stretch IRAs. You also want to look and see if you have accounts where you have to have checked a restricted beneficiary form where it can't be changed uh, after you have passed away. You might want to review that and make sure that it still works based on who your beneficiaries are, how they're related to you, how old they are, and how old they potentially would be when they inherit the account. So just to review those areas, this is kind of a, a big deal in the estate planning. And if you haven't looked at it for a while, it might be a good time to be thinking about who's on your beneficiary uh, of your retirement plans and your IRAs, how old are they, and whether or not this is going to impact that, and there's anything you should be considering to make a change. So we have uh, available, I just wanted to mention that we have the new rule summary of the Securities Act. Uh, it's not in the presentation as a summary uh, other than on the slide here, but if you find that you would like to have a copy of this, you can just let us know and we can make that available to you because this kind of gives you all of the rules uh, that we're summarizing today in the Secures Act of 2019. So let's take some notes of uh, life changes and think about uh, your personal life and things that may have changed that also would make us want to review our plans and what we're doing from a financial aspect and our objectives and goals. Personal life check. So I have a nice little list here on the slide, and this is related to the fact that when things change, personal or family circumstances, where you might want to uh, update your uh, retirement plans, your wills, your beneficiary designation, your insurance needs, and discuss whether or not your estate plan still is going to work, think about this list here of any of the following events that have occurred, and it might be in the last year, or you may have had these things occur in the last five years and really hadn't addressed any of them. But if you have where there's new spouses, there's new children, there's new grandkids, marriages, divorce, right? We have parents' health that we're now worried about. New financial goals, maybe you changed and you decided you were gonna fund some other project or a vacation home. Um, job changes, retirement change with uh, last year with 2020 being an exceptionally uh, crazy year. A lot of people might've changed the desire to retire uh, when they had originally expected. And so you might want to revisit, is your plan on track for that? And are your documents and your investments aligned with that? You know, your insurance coverage, does it still match? And then your taxes and regulatory changes. So you can see there's some things in 2019 that have changed that might make you want to change how you have your assets arranged and how you have your estate planning arranged based on taxes and regulatory changes that have taken place. So we really want to review all of those ideas either with your financial professional or if you're our client, of course, we want to help you do that um, and make sure that we're staying uh, in line with those ideas and those changes. So one of the areas that is really key and uh, everyone should do this periodically so that you don't have any uh, unforeseen surprises is to review if you have a life change or if you've never really actually just sat down and reviewed your beneficiary designations and make sure on an annual basis uh, and especially if there's changes that are life cycle events in the family or life events, to make sure that they read the way they're supposed to read. And that that way you avoid, of course, unforeseen problems where individuals who shouldn't be receiving assets still get them, or there's a tax scenario that you hadn't had a problem with prior, but because of code changes and these Secure Act kind of changes, now you might have a conflict with your estate plan and you wanna make sure you review that and see if everything still is gonna work the way you thought it was. So it's nice to have a sheet like this to kind of go through your accounts, do yourself a beneficiary review, um, and make sure if there's any life events uh, that you're able to understand and know 
um, exactly whether or not you're conflicting with the current rules and if they still apply to what you're trying to do. All right. A beneficiary review. So again, as we're talking about it is, did someone get divorced? Did someone have a baby? Did someone pass away? Right? Do any of your accounts have beneficiary designations where you maybe originally weren't even sure who you should put down, so you left it blank? Probably want to re revisit that, right? Make sure that you've updated that and make sure you have something on there that matches what your desires are, right? Make sure that you have both a primary and a contingent. So, of course, you know, the primary is somebody who gets it upon the first passing away, but what if a spouse and uh, myself pass away together or two people who are listed as primary are no longer alive, you want to make sure that you have some contingents. And then we have a lot of times a little confusion on the, is it a per purpose designation appropriate or not? And do you understand the difference between a per capita versus the per stirpes? And what that relates to is in a lot of scenarios, we might have a client that comes in and they have three children and they say, well, what happens if one of my children dies before the other two? Do you want the money to flow to the deceased child's um, lineage or do you want it to flow to the remaining two children? So per stirpus means that it's gonna flow to the deceased child's lineage, right? It's gonna go down their family line rather than go to the two remaining children. Or you might say, no, I want it to go equally to whatever remaining children there are should I pass away and not follow the bloodline of the child who may have passed away prior to me. So that's an area that doesn't always uh, get brought up, but that that's an option. And sometimes it's good to know which direction is your beneficiary designations going. The other thing is, is there any red flags such as behavior with some of your children or relatives or creditors issues and whether or not they should be receiving funds as a beneficiary? Is a trust needed to kind of control that factor? And then there's this proper planning requires consideration of beneficiaries tax uh, status. And what that means is, a lot of times we have assets, maybe a Roth IRA or a deferred annuity, and we're kind of trying to figure out, okay, I don't want to pay the taxes on these things while I'm alive. However, are the tax scenarios for the people who are going to inherit it lower or higher than my scenario, right? So if I have a Roth IRA and my children are in a very high tax bracket, maybe that's a great asset for them to inherit because, of course, there's no taxes due on the Roth IRA. However, maybe I have a traditional IRA and I'm in a very low tax bracket. Maybe I don't want my children at the higher tax bracket to inherit those. Maybe I want to assume some of that tax liability while I'm alive and in a lower tax bracket. So you kind of see there's a lot of nuances and areas that we want to address. And that's kind of the proper planning. So, you know, for again, for today's purpose, kind of think about who's going to inherit my accounts, who is my estate plan set up for. Are there any changes that might impact that? But also the taxes between myself and those who are going to inherit it. And if there's anything I should be doing while I'm alive to lessen the impact of taxes uh, when something should happen to me. All right. Do the changes to the beneficiary options need to be discussed with family members? Sometimes it's nice to have the children in the loop, and sometimes people don't really want the children to be in the loop. So you kind of have to figure that out. And then sometimes it's nice to restrict the beneficiaries, meaning that you don't want to allow anyone to change that. Maybe you become incapacitated or maybe you don't want your power of attorney or you don't want a guardian. So there's restricted beneficiary designations and whether or not those are appropriate. So that's all you know. kind of takes place in how we're addressing taxes, estate planning, 
and how our assets are held and what they're allocated into investment-wise. So what we wanna talk about is the whole concept of uh, the 1040. And so what is the 1040? The 1040 is our tax return, of course, right? And so if you wanna get a basic handle on our financial situation as an individual, one of the best places for you and I to figure out whether or not we can improve our situation is by looking at our tax return and looking at our 1040, all right? So what do we wanna do is we wanna identify areas on our taxes that maybe we could improve upon. And just like going to a doctor and the doctor tells us what the scenarios are that can improve or things that we're doing that are not improving our situation, the 1040 tax return is a logical place that gives us a lot of information about things we might be doing well and things that we can improve upon. So again, either with your own financial professional or if, with us, if you feel uh, it's appropriate, we'd like to help and take care of looking at your 1040 and seeing if there's some ways and why is it useful. So let's look at the benefits of conducting a review of your tax return. Rather than just saying, which is a lot of times we do, we give our tax information to the CPA or the tax preparer, whatever they tell us it is, we pay the bill or we get a refund and we're done. However, if you were to look at it a little more in depth, you could notice things on your 1040 tax return that you may be able to tweak before you actually have them prepared, right? So what are we gonna see on the tax return on the 1040? We're gonna see our income, what we took for deductions. We're gonna see if we've made contributions to retirement plans or IRAs. And we're gonna see any exposure to net investment income tax, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. So what is our goal? Our goal is reviewing that 1040 is to identify opportunities that you can use to increase your um, efficiencies and hopefully lessen your tax burden and come up with strategies to do that. And where are those five opportunities? It's gonna be, maybe there's a chance to take some funds out of something uh, while you're alive or in service. Maybe you're subject to what they call the investment income tax, and you could get below that and save yourself some uh, tax uh, revenue that way. Maybe you could utilize some non-qualified annuities or tax deferral, have some trust set up, or utilize IRAs in an efficient way to reduce our tax burden. So all of that information on your 1040 tax return is gonna identify areas where we can improve um, or we can really confirm if it be the case, that you're doing everything possible to be efficient and have a good plan and a good strategy. So let's talk about the 1040. And um, I know people on the webinar don't have their tax return sitting in front of them, but I'm gonna kind of highlight some key areas and you maybe wanna just take a note or two and you can utilize this information when you go back uh, to your tax return and kind of see what areas you could improve on. Right, so lines one through seven on our tax return just tells us where all our income comes from, right? Then we're gonna have sources of income and then we're gonna have adjusted gross income. That's a really important number, right? That number tells us after we got to take everything off our income deduction-wise and expense-wise or whatever we were able to do, now we have an adjusted uh, gross income number. Then we wanna take our standard itemized deductions and see there's a few things that have changed. We're gonna review that in a minute. Um, how the deduction, the standardized deduction has changed. Um, and then we're gonna talk about what your tax brackets are and why that's important. And that's on line 11B that tells us our net taxable income and that determines what tax bracket you're in. 
And then we're gonna talk about line 15, which are other taxes that you might be subjected to and whether or not that's gonna help or hurt us in our overall tax uh, burden that we owe to the government. So let's talk about wages, salary, and tips. That's what our income is made up with typically, right? Talking about if I have income because I have a, a job somewhere, if I have salaries. So the W-2 that we get from our employer indicates on there whether or not you're taking advantage of the employer-sponsored retirement plan. So that's a good place for us to look and see if there's room there to increase that if we have a high tax burden, right? The other thing is we might wanna request a copy of the plan document from our employer's plan so we can determine if that's available for us to have matching on that, if there's availability for us to reduce some expenses on that, but we wanna see that, right? And then you might find out that the plan uh, most likely will allow for a catch-up provision and whether or not that's a way for you to get additional funds in if you're over the age of 50, right? So things to consider when we're looking at this, of course, are gonna be in-service withdrawals, whether I'm allowed to take assets out of the retirement plan through my employer, under certain uh, situations prior to my retirement, whether or not I'm fully vested. You know, so sometimes we have a scenario where we believe that we're putting money into the plan and that our employer is making a contribution only to find out that the vested portion is not all of the money because we haven't either worked there long enough, uh, which is probably the most likely case, right? And whether or not individuals over age 59 and a half, uh, whether or not we have access to funds to utilize for our desired goals and objectives, right? So possible reasons then, once we know what the ins and outs are, is you might determine, well, I think if I can have access to my funds while I still work at an employer under certain conditions, maybe I wanna allocate investments in a different direction than what's limited by the employer's plan, right? Maybe I wanna do something where I have some guarantees of the income and my retirement plan doesn't allow that, or maybe I want income prior to age 59 and a half, because I'm gonna retire sooner or I just desire that income, where are the exceptions that I can get around the 10% penalty rule for not being over 59 and a half? So that's the kind of things we wanna address. And this is what we wanna find out from our W-2s and from our tax statements, right? So there's a little sheet here that talks about a helpful review for your IRAs and kind of listing where they are, uh, how they're held, who's the custodian and who are the beneficiaries are, and then determining what the rules are pertaining to each of those assets so we can implement that into our plan. So let's talk about our sources of income besides W-2, right? So we have on line two of the 1040 tax return, there's something called taxable and there's something called tax exempt interest. And then we have line three, which is ordinary and qualified dividends. And so why these are really important is because a lot of that is in our full control to determine whether or not our investment assets get categorized that way based on how you invest your investment accounts, right? So tax efficient investments is really important in the sense of determining, maybe it would be good to know what the tax rate is on my investments by knowing my tax rate, which we talked about is on line 10, that's gonna tell us our income, and then determining if we should have some tax exempt. So tax exempt, again, meaning tax-free. Maybe it's Minnesota municipals that are not subject to state or federal income taxes. Well, if you're in a very high tax rate, that might be a really great thing to have so that you're netting uh, the same amount or even more in your pocket, but that's because you're in a very high tax bracket and we needed to know that in order to take advantage of tax-exempt assets in your accounts, right? Or maybe we want to convert and make sure that we're getting long-term capital gains 
which is another aspect of our assets versus short-term capital gains or dividends. So we wanna review all of that and know all of that going into it. And the best place for us to see whether it has a huge or kind of medium or no effect on you is to see your tax returns and then look at how our assets are invested and what categories we wanna be in from a tax efficiency, really important, right? So things to consider then is, there's a Schedule B that identifies your assets that are generating income. So we wanna look at that and we wanna look at what they're categorized and we wanna see what those assets are. And the key there, it says, is conduct a fixed income review, right? So things to consider. Why is fixed income important? Because those are the assets that are generating a lot of taxable income potentially, right? They're, they're non-stock usually holdings. And that is important for us to understand what am I getting after tax, not just before tax, right? So again, if something generates a certain interest or a certain yield, what happens after I take into account the tax implications on that? Am I better off continuing that path or am I better off finding an asset that maybe is exempt uh, and then I have a tax benefit and I can take less risk potentially and I can get the same amount of income in my pocket after I take into account the consideration of taxes, right? Especially the last one on the list there is if current income is not needed, right? So you're gonna pay taxes in most scenarios, whether you take the income off the asset or not. But what if the current income uh, is generated and you don't need it? Uh, maybe you can consider how to consolidate your income producing assets into a more efficient tax uh, position. And those are the things we wanna take into account. And that's the kind of things that your financial professional should be able to help you with, okay. Again, if anyone has any questions, uh, we're going kind of fast, you know, feel free to put something in the question box. Uh, Landon uh, can uh, read the question to us and we'd be happy to address any situation or any question you might have at, at a particular point. So let's talk about sources of income. On our tax return, we have something called, right, IRA distributions. So again, if you're over that 70 and a half or if you're gonna be over the age of 72 going forward, um, or maybe you had a hardship or whatever the case might be, you might've took money out of an IRA, it's gonna show up on your tax return, right? If you're getting a pension or you've got annuities that are generating income to you, it's gonna be on your tax return on line 4A and 4C there, right? So why is this important? So this is important for our retirement income because we wanna determine the nature of how that distribution's coming. We wanna know if it was a mandatory distribution, right, that we were required to take out, we want to determine if it came from some sort of account that it's a not a taxable event. Maybe it's coming from a Roth IRA or you know some sort of investment account that wouldn't require us to claim it as income, maybe a non-deductible IRA. So we want to evaluate all those situations and then see how our income is coming together, especially if we can already determine ahead of time whether we need all that income to utilize for our expenses or whether some of that income is excess and we could reposition the income so that it has a more tax efficiency. So things to consider, you may wanna consolidate your IRA so you have an easier time managing it and making sure how it's generating income and how it's positioned. You might want to consider investments or uh, products that you could invest your IRAs in that would give you lifetime income guarantees. And you might wanna also consider if you're fortunate and you have Roth IRAs, maybe having the higher yielding, higher income producing investments in there, because again, remember, we're trying to get that to grow tax free. And so that'd be a great benefit if it's higher yielding and you don't get taxed on it now, 
It's going to really reward us later, and we want to potentially do that inside a Roth IRA. All right, so let's talk about sources of uh, other income, line five. So for many of us on the uh, call or the webinar, we're collecting Social Security, or we're trying to determine should we collect Social Security, and what would that do to our scenario, um, whether or not we tap into Social Security at age 62 or at age 70, or what is the right amount? So again, we want to look at the taxes and we want to say things to consider. Are we collecting it as an individual? Am I married? And are we both collecting it? Should we both be collecting it? Uh, or should one of us collect it? So we want to go through those scenarios and figure out what is the best fit for you based on kind of what you're trying to accomplish and based on what your needs are, right? So if you're under full retirement age, you know, and so everyone, it's a little different. Somebody full retirement age is going to be 66 and 10 months. Somebody else retirement age might have been 67. So we want to know what your full retirement age based on your birth date. And then we want to know how that affects your Social Security benefits. We also want to know, will you be taxed on your Social Security benefits based on when you start to take them? And then does that really make sense to take Social Security benefits if the tax implication is too high, and if it's not too high, then we have that discussion and we can figure out that it does make sense. We also wanna then lastly on the list, of course, right, is look at, is there an opportunity to decrease my taxable income to prevent some things from being taxed? Maybe there's a way for me to reduce my taxable income even though I'm getting social security and therefore I won't get social security tax going forward, right? So we wanna take into all of those things uh, on that list and all of that idea into our planning of Social Security, when to take it, and all of this is really shown on our tax return. That's kind of our map that tells us how to be tax efficient going forward. So let's talk about uh, sources of income besides Social Security, earned income. Here we have capital gains. And so capital gains uh, are a very interesting uh, aspect because we have short-term and long-term capital gains and long-term capital gains are taxed at a different rate than our regular income. And that's why it's important, right? So what does a capital gain or loss mean? Well, it's gonna show up on our line six. However, if we have assets that are not retirement assets, correct? They're gonna be investment assets that are not in qualified retirement accounts. Um, the question is, how can we potentially convert them or get taxed at a long-term rate? Because if we look at the chart that's on the screen, you can see the long-term capital gain rates are lower by quite a bit than our ordinary income tax rates. And it's a big benefit if we can have capital gains as the distribution, as opposed to ordinary income as the distribution, right? So again, you can kind of see from the chart, uh, if I'm a joint filer and um, I'm between zero and 80,000, my capital gain tax rate is zero. Right? If I'm single, I can have up to $40,000 of income and my capital gains that I have to claim are gonna get taxed at zero. Well, that's a lot different than the tax rate if it was considered dividends or interest and categorized differently. And you can see the maximum that I'm gonna be subject to, which is also pretty low relative to what my ordinary income tax rate would be for other income is 20%, right? So again, if I have over, $496,600 of income, right? That's the limit. 
The worst scenario is I get capital gains rates at 20%. However, if I'm in an ordinary income scenario, it's probably more like half of my money is going to taxes rather than only 20%, correct? So we also got to remember that there's a threshold where if I have a certain level of income, there's the 3.8% net investment income tax for high earners and capital uh, gain rates do not align with income tax brackets, right? So we want to keep that in mind is you see they're at a lower rate and sometimes we want to take that into account and see if we can take advantage of that. We also want to know that if our income's at a certain level and our assets are generating a certain amount of capital gains and, and income, whether or not we should be thinking about ways to reduce that so we don't get uh, hit with the 3.8% extra tax um, and whether or not there's a possibility for us to change that, right? So we wanna take all that into account. And again, today's purpose is just to put this out there so you have some ideas to think about and consider whether it might apply to you, have a chance to uh, take your tax returns out and look at these categories and say, boy, it looks like I have some numbers here I wonder if I'm doing the best I can efficiency-wise. Another source of income that a lot of clients are gonna have is they're gonna have income from uh, real estate or rental, or maybe they have a, a partnership with a family member, um, or they have a trust, right? And again, this is important to know is if you're uh, fortunate enough to either receiving income from a trust, right? Or you're gonna be fortunate enough to create a trust for somebody else to receive income, the tax rate on a trust is extremely high compared to an individual at a very low level, right? So if you look at it here, you can see that an irrevocable trust is gonna be at 37% with only $12,950 of retained income. Pretty low threshold to be at a 37% tax rate. So the thing we wanna determine is, do you uh, need that income or does the beneficiary of the trust really need that income? and whether or not it should be in a trust or what assets should go in there to make sure we can be tax efficient with things that are ending up in a trust account, right? So again, things to consider. Should we increase the income coming out of the trust? Should we leverage income producing investments in the trust? Right? Or do we wanna reduce the income that the trust generates and use tax efficient investments? So again, especially if your plan is to own assets in a trust while you're alive, this is important. And it's also important if someone's gonna inherit assets, whether or not you wanna position it so that they don't have to worry about getting income from your trust that they're the beneficiaries on and the trust paying at a very high rate and a, a chance for us to adjust that and make some changes to make it more efficient. All right, so let's talk about adjustments to our income. So these are ways uh, that you could get your income level to go down especially uh, maybe in a year where you had some unusual or high income for the year, and you said it'd be nice if I had a way to get some extra deduction or get some extra money off my income. So this is gonna be on your tax return. It says it's on line 8A, right? And it's all about if I'm self-employed, what kind of ways can I do that, right? Should I do a SEP, a simple or a qualified plan? Those are all retirement accounts. And reviewing that and understanding what are my alternatives if I'm uh, working somewhere, but then I have a consulting business or I have some outside income from someplace else, maybe it's a good chance to utilize one of these retirement plans as a self-employed individual to keep me below certain thresholds tax-wise, especially if I'm making income that I don't necessarily wanna spend now, right? I wanna use it in the future. 
review this and find out if this is an opportunity for you to get your income levels down, right? So again, consider a plan upgrade for business owners might be changing what plan they have so that they can contribute more money. You might've started out with a simple IRA maybe, it was one of the plans that you see on the list and then determine that the limits were too low and that you would like to put more in and evaluate right what plan is best either if you're self-employed or you have a side business, uh, this is what this is all about, right? Try to reduce my income uh, so I don't have to pay as much taxes in the current year. So let's talk about IRA deductions, right? So that's another area that even if I'm not self-employed and even if I had a plan through work, I potentially can be doing my own IRA. And especially if my spouse has a, a retirement plan at work and I don't, um, or maybe my spouse is uh, working and earning income and I'm not, I could still take advantage potentially of a spousal IRA where the non-working spouse or the at-home spouse can make contributions that could help our taxes and help our scenario, even though the non-working spouse isn't going out and earning income. So again, considering if we're married and we wanna consider contributions to uh, reduce our tax liability, is a spousal IRA an opportunity for us to do that? And whether or not, depending on our income, we're gonna qualify or not qualify, and whether or not we should think about maybe doing a non-deductible IRA um, as opposed to just paying the taxes going forward, right? So things to consider. There's also a way to do a backdoor Roth IRA uh, conversion for high income producers, meaning there's some ways you can convert by making contributions to IRAs, convert those IRAs that gave you the deduction into Roth IRAs going forward by circumventing and kind of backdooring around the high income uh, levels that would have disqualified you in the first place. And then be aware of consolidating your IRAs and accounting for all of them when we try to do those ideas, because it's really important. And sometimes uh, we don't remember where all of our accounts are, if we have them at different places. If we consolidate it or we keep it a little simpler, then it's easier for us potentially to take advantage of some of these backdoor rules that are allow us to do it, because we need to really account for all of our IRAs when we do it. And so we need to make sure that we understand where they all are and what they're all at valued. And sometimes simpler makes that easier to do that, right? And whether or not we should consider lifetime income products and whether we should, again, position high yielding investments in our Roth IRAs as opposed to having high yielding investments in our non-retirement accounts um, generating a lot of taxable income. So let's talk about something that changed, and this was a big uh, big rule change in, for a lot of people, because a lot of our clients, and a lot of you probably, um, were used to saying I have my standardized deduction, but then I still do itemization because I make a lot of donations and I have a lot of other areas that I can get deductions off of my taxes. So here's what kind of changed, right? The Tax Cut and Jobs Act doubled the standard deduction. So it changed in, uh, 2020, right? It went from uh, 12,200 in 2019 to 12,400. However, in 2019, it actually doubled, right? So if you're married and you're filing jointly, you actually have a, just a straight up deduction of $24,800 without doing any itemization or accounting for any of your donations or any of your other items that might've gave you deductions, right? So if the number on line nine is more than the standard deduction, so line nine is gonna be 
your schedule where you did all of your gifting, all of your donations, all of the things that you felt you should get to itemize, healthcare expenses, things of that nature. If that line is more than the standard deduction, of course, you're going to itemize. However, because the threshold is much higher now, right? For an individual, 12,400 is the threshold and 24,800 for married. If we're not above the standard deduction, in most cases, we're not going to be able to itemize anymore and get any advantage, right? So what is an area that we would have had a huge uh, possibility of doing itemized deduction? Might have been our mortgage interest. Might have been our donations to the uh, church. Might have been donations to the Goodwill. All of that now we have to take into account as to whether or not it helps us anymore or if we're just going to take the standard deduction and we're not going to be able to itemize. And then we have the whole property taxes and state income uh, tax caps based on locality and how that affects us. So these rules changed and we want to take that into account knowing whether we should be worrying about getting more itemized deductions or whether those are not even helping us anymore and how that affects our overall picture. So let's talk about uh, qualified business income for those who are on the webinar who might be business owners. If you're a small business owner and you don't show a deduction on line 10, you know we have to talk about whether or not there's a way to utilize your business income and, and whether or not we can help you reduce your income. And there's a little worksheet here about the navigating the federal tax landscape in relationship to self-employed and small business owners. So let's talk about other taxes on IRAs and qualified plans, right? So there's some ways that we want to take into account if we're determining that we're going to try to use qualified money um, going forward uh, at different points in our, in our life and different points of when we want to utilize that in our retirement plan, right? So here's the first talking point is to avoid penalties. We want to talk about retirement plan withdrawals before I'm 59 and a half, right? So a lot of times people um, are under the understanding that I want to retire at an earlier age than 59 and a half, but I can't access my retirement accounts because of the 59 and a half rule that says I would get penalized. Well, there are some exceptions to that. And a great thing to do then is to review and determine if you might meet any of those exceptions so that you could utilize your retirement plan accounts prior to age 59 and a half and not get penalized. So one of the rules is called this 72T or 72QT, which is basically the IRS code, but that does have a way for you to take systematic equal payments out of your qualified retirement accounts prior to 59 and a half and not be subject to the 10% penalty. You know, so these are things we wanna uh, take into account. We also wanna worry about if we have an extra uh, contribution that we weren't allowed to make, or if you didn't take your RMDs when you were supposed to, right? We gotta make sure that we have all of those in line so that we can avoid penalties and not have extra taxes paid when we weren't really gonna have to do that if we figured out what the exceptions are and determined if we could apply those. So we gotta be very cautious, right? When we're dealing with our retirement accounts, we wanna follow the IRA rules because they can be complex, but depending on your scenario, we wanna get some financial advice from a professional and see where we can avoid penalties and mistakes and then determine uh, how we can best utilize our assets even if they're in retirement accounts, right? Other ways that we can kind of get uh, hung up on paying a lot more in taxes than uh, we may have had to is we wanna look at whether or not you might be subject to this 3.8 net investment income tax, right? So this is an amount that you will be paying in addition to 
the income taxes you already would have paid. And so what the threshold is, is if you're a single taxpayer and you make more than $200,000, you're gonna potentially have to deal with this extra tax. But if you're uh, married and filing together, the threshold is 250,000. Again, so you have to think about if I'm below the $200,000 as a single person for annual income, or I'm below the $250,000 threshold for a uh, married couple filing jointly, uh, then I'm probably not gonna be subject to this. But if I'm close to that number, and if I could avoid going over that number, what are the ways I can utilize to reduce my taxable income so that I don't have myself subject to this, especially if I'm in an area where I'm very close or I potentially could be close, and I could just tweak a few ideas, and maybe I might get around that. You know, Again, we don't wanna be subject to taxes that we're not required to pay, so we want to do a little bit of planning and kind of digging in. And again, our tax return is a great way for us to utilize information that you're currently doing and then how we can maneuver and kind of come up with strategies. Things to consider, right, is how do I avoid that excise tax? Is, well, Roth IRA withdrawals are not included in determining the income above that income threshold. So again, maybe you have a year where you need some income, but if we're making our distributions from traditional IRAs, um, traditional IRA distributions are excluded from the tax, potentially creating exposure. No, they're not excluded, right? So you have to be careful if we want to stay below the threshold and you need income, maybe it's time to use some of the Roth IRA in that particular year so it keeps us below the threshold and doesn't subject us to that. Municipal bond income, again, right? Municipal bonds are bonds that are tax exempt in most cases and are issued by a municipality. Those are excluded. Maybe there's a way to generate income utilizing those in your plan, right? And then you wouldn't have to be subject to this extra 3.8% tax. Maybe there's tax deferred and tax efficient investments that could delay the income down to future years. So maybe you had something unusual happen uh, on your taxes this year, or you know you're gonna have something unusual. Maybe you have a, a sale of a cabin, or you have a sale of an asset, or you have a big inheritance, and you were thinking to yourself, boy, if I could wait a few years to have to claim this income on my other assets, I should defer that. How can I do that and how can I make that more efficient? And then I'll take the income down the road from these assets, but I really don't wanna do it in a year where they're gonna uh, charge me an extra 3.8% net investment tax, all right? And then consider whether or not it's also a good time to take capital losses. You know, we talked earlier that capital gains uh, are taxed at a lower rate than our ordinary income, However, you can wash your capital losses against your capital gains and determining when's a good time to do that and whether or not if you find yourself in a higher income threshold for whatever reason in a certain year, maybe that's a time to utilize the losses and offset those capital gains so that you can keep your income down. So final thoughts, right? So again, the 1040 is equivalent to basically, you know, if you're going to the physician uh, at the doctor's office and you want to get a snapshot of your health and so we're going to use our tax return to give us a snapshot of our investment health and our financial health um, so again any recent changes in the regulations that have an impact on your retirement plans or your income stream we saw the secure act was a big one any life events that occurred is there any opportunity for you to maybe get some more money in pre-tax into a retirement account and then were you subject to tax penalties and if so was there something we could do going forward on our investments and on our accounts to avoid get penalized by restructuring or changing our strategy?
So I'm going to stop there. I'm just going to reemphasize uh, if you have a question, uh, this is kind of the end of our formal presentation. Uh, feel free to put it in the question box and Landon can read that to the group. Um, we're kind of at our time allotment. I just want to reiterate that none of this is designed for me to be a um, legal advisor, right? I'm not giving uh, information that would say um, this is legal advice or tax advice but you can see it's very tied into how your financial advisor and you work together. And it's very tied into having a really good strategy for your retirement goals and your financial objectives. And it's really important that you revisit, you know, regularly, most likely annually, has the rules changed? And is there anything I can do to take advantage of the rules currently um, and reduce my tax burden? So um, I don't think there's any questions, it, it appears. Uh, I think that, would be, um, I'm just gonna look to make sure. Nope, so I think we're good. So with that, I'm gonna thank everyone for attending. Uh, we really appreciate your time today. Hopefully you got some valuable uh, information and learned some things that you can utilize in your own situation. Again, if you'd like some of the slides or you would like to get some of the handouts, uh, just shoot me an email. Uh, my email address is jkavaznik at uh, securitiesamerica.com. I think you saw that at the beginning there. And um, you can go on our bank's website at www.bankcherokee.com and find me under investment services or utilize any of the bank services, of course, at Bank Cherokee. So again, thank you for attending and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And we look forward to seeing you at the next webinar. If you have any questions, please contact Jonathan Kavaznik at jkavaznik, that's K-V-A-S-N-I-K, at securitiesamerica.com. ESG Players Podcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and many other platforms through the Backroom Studios. That's Backroom Studios, S-T-E-W-D-I-O-S. Securities offered through Securities America, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC, Jonathan B. Kovacnik, CHFC, Registered Representative, Advisory Services offered through Securities America Advisories, Inc., Cherokee Investment Services, Bank Cherokee and Securities America are separate companies, not FDIC insured, no bank guarantees, may lose value, not insured by any government agency, not bank deposits.